and welcome back to The Midpoint. Today, I'm joined by journalist and broadcaster Krishnan Gurumurthy. Krishnan is one of the lead presenters of Channel 4 News and has been part of the team since 1998, making him one of the nation's best-known news anchors. Krishnan is the second longest-serving presenter of Channel 4 News, and he also presents the accompanying podcast Ways to Change the World. He's filmed documentaries all over the globe for Unreported World, fronted big news events such as 9-11, and reported from war zones in Syria, Yemen and Gaza. He's covered five British general elections to date and presented the first live autopsy on TV. Some may argue they're not so different. Add to this his stint on Strictly Come Dancing in 2023 and it strikes me that he's not a man that often turns down a challenge. And when his health was challenged in his early 50s, he radically changed his diet and lifestyle. So we're also going to be joined by Dr Emily Porter, a specialist dietitian at the Gut Health Clinic. Emily's here to shed some light on the relationship between your gut and your overall health. But first, here's Krishnan. Krish, welcome to The Midpoint. Very nice to be here. Thank you so much for coming on. It's very exciting to have you here in your suit looking resplendent, wearing a tie because you've hot-footed it from the the midday news. Yeah, this is very much Channel 4 News (laughs) look. My sort of my days of, of having two heads are over. I'm just back on the news now. I was going to say the sequins have been banished. Yeah, yeah. We finished the tour about a week ago, and yeah, no. I mean, strangely, it's been quite nice to get back to just one job. Really? Well, because two jobs for six months or seven months is quite quite a lot, and much more than you imagine. And you have to throw yourself into strict. Yeah. So inevitably, the other job's going to be slightly kind of, I don't know, not, you never neglect it, but it's never going to be your main focus, is it? Of course, because that's the one I, you know, I've been doing a long time, so I can kind of cruise a little bit on that. So yeah, so it did feel like I wasn't putting everything into that. And it's a very demanding time. So it's actually quite nice. I've been quite excited this week going back to uh, I think in a way you've done it well, because you've you've come out of Strictly, didn't have too long to wait till the Christmas special. So you've probably had a few weeks of work. Then you got yourself going on the tour so it kind of eases you out it's kind of decompressing your experience yes when you leave suddenly which everybody leaves strictly suddenly nobody expects to go when they go so when you leave suddenly it's there's a grief isn't there and yeah i mean it's it's a very weird thing and and the the tv show i think leaves everybody slightly bereft Mm. because you've been you've been going as you know at you know at 100 miles an hour and working eight 10 hour days and training like crazy and learning new things and having an amazing time and meeting all these people and then having the stress and the emotional high and low of the saturday night show and whether you whether you live to fight another week or not and then it's suddenly over and it feels unfinished and uh, as you know as though you've got a lot more in you mm. Well, you've so you've already then, started thinking about your following week. Yeah, you? So. yeah, you've already started thinking about that, and it, and it feels cruel and unfair. And um, so you then sign up to do the tour, and the tour is totally different, and it's nothing like the TV show at all. And it's basically a big show that you take on the road, and it's like doing the school play on steroids in front of ten thousand people. <laughs> and uh, and it's great fun, but then when you get to the end of it, it's like yes, you're. My time's done. You've done. Yeah. yeah. You, you, and it's a good way of getting over Strictly, I think. I've met very, very few people who ever regretted doing Strictly. I think there's probably only a handful in the history of time who have, have ever even kind of vocalised that. Um, you certainly don't seem like you'd fall into that group. You seem like someone who absolutely embraced everything Strictly had to offer. Yeah, I totally threw myself into it. I thought the only way to do it was to do it. And you couldn't 
calculate and go, well, I'll do it so far and I'll only do this and I won't wear sequins and I'll, I'll be serious. I'll be ser- you know, I've got to worry about my credibility and all that kind of stuff. You just forget about all of that. And the only way to really do and enjoy Streetly is to be 110% and just go for it. And I did. And it was, you know, what you put in, you get out. It's very, very rewarding. And what is interesting as well, there's such a marked contrast, as there always is every year with the contestants, but you are that person that I think people want to champion because your day job is so far removed. You know, Mr. Serious, wearing a tie, talking to world leaders and and other very important people. The contrast was massive, (laughs) I think it's fair to say, yeah. And I think even though there have been lots of news people and there's usually a news person on there, they tend to come from perhaps the chattier end of news, breakfast news, morning shows, that kind of thing. And I don't think they've ever had anybody who did... I mean, you know, I do the most serious program on the telly and so I think the contrast was was huge and that and they obviously loved that idea and a relief for you I imagine at a time in your life where it's time to just perhaps have that moment it's like a reset yeah I mean I'm not sure I realized that at the time that I was doing it but it became very clear as soon as I started I think when I did it you know I was really just playing around doing something different thought I might have some fun thought it would last three or four weeks you know, maybe I'd survive two weeks of the actual show and you have two weeks of training before that and it would just be a good thing to do. But as soon as you start doing it, yes, you suddenly become aware that it is this huge outlet for, you know, all these feelings and energy and type of energy that you just haven't been using in the day job. And it became very enjoyable very quickly. And so you want more of it. So you desperately try hard to stay in. And I've read you say that it made you brave. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know, it's quite hard to sort of think back into those early weeks, but I think you you do just have to sort of jump off and not worry about being rubbish or being uncoordinated or being old or, you know, being any of the things that you would normally think about if somebody said, do you fancy doing Strictly mm-hmm. as the presenter of Channel 4 News? But I think it was more that it it made me think about a lot of the stuff that I'd put away since being younger. Mm. You know, when, when I started out in TV, I did a lot of entertainment and children's TV and youth TV and had lots of fun as well as doing quite serious stuff. But I was told to stop, basically, by the head of news. Because you had at the to BBC, be serious. Who's, to be serious. Who, you know, yes, who, who, who decided that you couldn't be two things at once. And in fact, he actually said to me, you, you can be Bruce Forsyth or Jeremy Paxman, you can't be both, you know, take a decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I decided to go down the news route and put everything else away. So it unlocked quite a lot of that fun and exhilaration from doing that kind of entertainment. You found your you fun easily side forget. again. Yeah, you know, and I think that's partly an age thing as well in that, you know, you, um, you get a job, you get a mortgage, you have children, everything becomes quite serious and responsible and you stop going to nightclubs and you stop doing stupid things and you become a grown-up. And all of a sudden you're 53 and <laughs> leading a very serious life and you, you haven't been having that much frivolous fun. So has fun Krish, who's now kind of had a bit of time out, he's escaped from the bottle, he's been released. Is he going to stay out? Is there, are you going to keep that, that person you know, energised and fueled. That's the challenge. I mean, it's very hard to say at the moment because I've literally just stopped. Mm. Um, I, I think, you know, carrying on the Strictly journey of doing the tour was partly about prolonging it. Uh, and now the challenge is how do you 
how do you keep having fun mm. and challenging yourself? Because I think it's also just about doing something really mm. challenging. Pushing yourself out Pushing of the comfort zones. Yeah. Out of the comfort zone and out of the thing that you know how to do because you've been doing it for 25 mm. years. So, yeah, I think, I think I'll just be saying yes to a lot more and not worrying so much mm. and, you know, giving things a try. Because there is nothing as exposing as going on a dance floor on live TV, uh, doing something that you're not proficient at, uh, you know, in terms of thinking... Do I look silly? Is this going to be, you know, is this going to be perceived as being terrible? You couldn't wish for a more exposing experience if you want to kind of like throw yourself into something different. So actually, any of the other things that you're asked to do, potentially... <laughs> are I'm be... not going to be as intense. No. I always use it as a kind of a measure, almost like a kind of barometer. I go, well, it can't be. I can't feel as bad as I did then. Yeah. You know, I can't feel as scared as I did then. Nothing's ever going to feel as nerve-wracking as, as that did. I mean, the nerves for me, I don't know how you found it, but they really took me by surprise. Mm. I, I think I hadn't really thought about it properly when I said yes to doing Strictly. And so it hadn't really occurred to me precisely what would happen. I felt nerves that I hadn't felt since I was a little kid. Mm. You know, sort of wobbly knees Pro kind of nerves. Proper butterflies yeah. in the stomach, yeah. And, and obviously that is exhilarating in a way mm. when you get away with it and you do well and you, you know, <laughs> or and you come it, away. As and, the judges or, or would smash it. And, um, but I hadn't really realised that that's what I was letting myself in for. So, yes, I suppose once you've done Strictly, not a loss is going to be that scary. Mm. And it's funny, I, I don't know, I, the, things that, the things that scare me in life are sort of, they make no sense anyway, I think. What, um, like what? Well, I think, <laughs> I mean, I, I always used to be scared of silly, you know, monsters and ghosts and supernatural stuff and I'm not really being scared of properly dangerous things you know sort of I mean obviously you're scared of dangerous stuff but I suppose in the course of my job I do go to dangerous places and you know I don't find that terrifying mm. the way that you might find going on the Strictly dance floor terrifying um, so what what you're scared of or what you find exhilarating is is a, is a strange thing I think to to think about um, do you think it's because of your serious job do you think it's kind of the, the fear of looking silly no, I don't think it is no. because I don't, I don't think I worried too much about looking silly. I, I worried about not doing it well, mm. not getting a good score of being sent home that week, of being the first one out. I wasn't really worried about being silly because um, I, th I think once, once you think I'm doing strictly, you know, everything is sort of off the scale, mm. absurd. So there's no point worrying about looking silly. Um, so there was a perfectionist in you who just wanted to be really good at it. Yeah, you just want really to do well. I think, yeah. you, you know, you, you want to do well and you want to do as well as you possibly can. I mean, when I say, I mean, not perfectionist, because obviously I, I was aware of my There's a realism. <laughs> but, um, you know, as well as I possibly could. And, I, and I, I kind of also think you want to kind of live up to what people are buying into. You know, mm, you're kind of aware yeah. that people are kind of rooting for you and believing in you. And so you kind of want to, to live up to that. So I don't, I don't honestly know how I'm going to match any of that. I mean, another sort of strictly alumni messaged me when I went out saying nothing is ever quite as sparkly as strictly. And I really hope that's not true. <laughs> Well, because it, yeah, but nothing in life really is I as sparkly as strictly. But that's great because you know you've you've dipped your, your toe into that world and yeah. had an experience of that. But that doesn't mean it can't be as exciting and fun. It's just yeah. strictly is like no other show on telly, and it makes people feel like no other show on telly, and it reaches an audience, you know, like no other show. So so it, it is the absolute peak of the mountain, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's the Mount Olympus of entertainment television. That's the other interesting thing about the tour, actually, because you meet the 
strictly it's just strictly fans who come to the tour. Mm. I think it tends not to be just yeah. they're not ordinary audiences. They are people who absolutely love the TV show, and so you get a sense of sort of who's watching and and what they get out of it. Because mm. obviously you meet a lot of them, and they um, they, tell they you get they in voted touch. For you. <laughs> yeah, you know, and through social media and all the rest of it. So so you have a you have a, a, a quite a good sense of what people enjoy about it, which, again, is not something I'd thought about much. It's an escapism, isn't that? Yeah. And there's escapism for the audience and for the people who do the show, I yeah. think. Although it's, a, it's absolutely a reality for the dancers, and you were blessed with a new dancer who I think is going to be uh, a perennial kind of... Lauren uh, Oakley, yeah, yes. Leader yeah, I'm it, sure you know. she'll do really, she's, really she's well. She's amazing. She's got a great personality. And she's that, a brilliant dancer. That whole dynamic of being with somebody, you know, you get to your 50s, you don't spend that much time with, an, you know, a, a, another woman when you've been married for 20-odd <laughs> years, do you? Uh, as much as, as you do on Strictly. Um, it's an interesting dynamic. Not in the same way. I mean, <laughs> we, Come here we obviously and push your groin into mine on day one. Yeah, I mean, I mean you know, I, I, you get to know people on the news quite well because we go away. You know, mm. we, we, you, you might go away for two periods. weeks yeah. with somebody filming and there's only two or three of you on the team. And so you do, you know, you spend every meal together and you get to know each other, but not in the same way because you're not in this shared endeavour. And obviously you don't have that physical intimacy that you've got to get over very, very quickly. Um, but did you get over very, very quickly? <laughs> yes, actually, yeah. <laughs> no, one. I did. I didn't worry too much about that. Because they touch was... you. This Now, this is obviously, I've got to be careful how I say this, <laughs> but they, and times have changed. It's 2007, yeah. but they touch you in a way that... No other job in the world could you get away with touching somebody, <laughs> but it's all part of the job. And when you come from a very different work environment, I think if you've been to stage school and you've done theatre school and all that kind of thing, you're probably used to that. But um, that was something that I was like, oh, hello. Yes. <laughs> so you smoke then. <laughs> it and, was a bit like that on day one. And I imagine much more so for women than for men, to be honest. Yeah. Because, because it is such a sort of a male-dominated thing, mm. dance. Mm. It's... Um, but the man leads. Yeah, the man leads, mm. and it, and it's it's sort of I've I found it quite difficult to get my head around that actually for for, in, for a while because it is a really old fashioned male dominated sexist kind of. Although strictly have thing. tried and have succeeded very well with their same sex couples and other other kind of things they've done. I think in terms of yes, how... although I th I still think there's something quite old-fashioned about the whole thing. Mm. But there's a, also a comfort, I think, in that. I quite like... And I like the thing that Ginger Rogers says about doing everything that Fred Astaire did but backwards yeah. and heels. I think everybody knows that while the man might be leading, you can see in the couples like you where the, where the male is the celebrity, the woman is working her socks off <laughs> to make it look <laughs> like you're leading. Yes. No, I think that's true. But I think also sort of in terms of who becomes the star and who's following it and all that kind of stuff, I think it... It's quite male-dominated in a way that really should still change. Mm. You know, if you think about this, the the people who've the professionals who mm. go through Strictly and then who get careers but, elsewhere right. or their own. And TV interestingly, show, you say that it tends to be the men. Shirley Ballas's um, Desert Island Discs, and she spoke very strongly about how she's been treated in a, a overtly yeah. sexist way in the industry. That that's the ballroom industry. This is not Latin yeah. ballroom. This is not the strictly TV show industry. <laughs> she's where she's clearly as head judge got a lot of power. Let's talk about the physical morph yes. morphing of Krish because this 
started long before you started on the show, or not long before, but months before. You had a, a bit of an epiphany with your health and well-being. It's almost exactly a year ago, really. I've got lots of things wrong with me, which I revealed <laughs> in the course of doing Strictly in a way that I never would have done before either. I sort of kind of thought, well, to, to hell with all the, my sort of, you know, hang-ups about privacy and keeping everything quiet. Um, but, you know, I've got, a, I've, got a, I've got a heart condition. I'm, I was far too overweight. I have got a history of Crohn's disease, which is not active, but I have had it. And then I, I also had a pre-diabetic blood test where the GP said, well, look, you know, if you carry on like this, you are going to have diabetes. And that has lots and lots of things that you really don't want. Mm. Lots of complications. So you've got to do something about it. And I didn't really do anything about it. I'd had that that um, instruction about six to nine months before. Why? Why did you not take that advice on board? I don't know. I just sort of, I was slightly hiding under the duvet around the whole thing. And just what did of, Lisa say, your wife? Um, I think I'd be quite cross if I, if Kenny had that and didn't change his... Yeah, I think she, well, I, I suppose because I've, I've generally not addressed all the things, you know, all, all of the other things in my life also mean that I ought to have a much healthier diet, I ought to have a much healthier lifestyle, I ought to have been much more active, but I wasn't. So I suppose Lisa was just a bit sort of like, well, look, you know, you've got to do it. It's, you know, I can't make you do it. Mm. And it was, I don't know why precisely, but we were just talking about um, me getting a grip. Um, and I, I was probably going through a slightly self-loathing phase of kind of thinking, oh, God, look at you, you look terrible and you feel terrible. And every so often I think that happens to me where I would, where I would just kind of feel How long did decrepit. they last, those, those kind of bouts of feeling? A few gosh. months, maybe. Really? Um, so. Just kind of like going, you, you know, you're sort of on the one-way escalator or travelator <laughs> to being just kind of decrepit and useless and, and, and unhealthy. Um, now that can't have done much good for your self-esteem. No, um, no, but I suppose you you make up for it in other ways, you know, especially in a job like mine, it's quite easy to compensate for a lack of physical confidence. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't, you know, I, I wasn't I wasn't down or depressed or anything, but I just, I, I don't have, I didn't have very high physical self-esteem. And every so often, you know, you would think, well, maybe I ought to do something about it. <laughs> you know? Did you start diets? And No, I mean, no. I mean, the, the only physical thing I've done in my life over the last 12 years now is a bike ride, which I don't do every year, but I've done quite a lot of them. And I, I, it's a bike ride for a charity that I'm now chairman of that was started by a close friend of mine whose son is the same age as my son and who has a, a muscular dystrophy called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Mm -hmm. And so every summer we do a 24-hour bike ride from London to Paris. I think I money for might have known you when you did the first one, actually. Yes. Yeah, in fact, you, you did. And so, and that was the first physical challenge I've done as an adult. And you carried on doing that every year. And I've tended to do it, well, most years, although um, I've had some years where I was injured and couldn't do it for, for, for all sorts of reasons. So, so But, but I'd, I'd become less and less conscientious about training for that. So I might just train for like six weeks, eight weeks or something like for that. And the rest of the so year... So you literally be... dust your bike down... Yeah, train for it, do it, and then and then the put it away. Because, um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I wasn't somebody who particularly enjoyed going out cycling every Sunday morning or anything like that. I was just doing it to raise money, and that needed to change. Mm. So yeah, I th it was it was around this time last year that I just kind of thought, I, you know, I I can't give up yet. You know, mm. sort of I'm too young to just kind of give up on everything uh, at this stage. So I ought to just at least try and lose weight. Mm -hmm. And I'd heard about this 
what is it, a clinic or a health resort or whatever it, you might call it in Austria, which a couple of friends of mine had been to years ago. Um, and it's the kind of place that people go to every year. Mm. You know, rich people with too much money and not too enough time. time and all the rest of it. Well, not enough time because they tend to uh, just go for like, you know, one week or two weeks to uh, kind of redress decompress their, and their put problems. their phone away. Um would go to and have a sort of a detox and it's the Maya clinic and um I was talking about it and that was where Lisa kind of came in my my wife because I was talking about it and before I knew it you were on a plane to Austria it was sort of booked and I was on a plane <laughs> and that was my ticket and it was like right go away and there is a Michael McIntyre sketch where he talks about having done this with and his wife took a very similar role in which you know he, he jokes about her sort of putting the ticket in his hand and saying go away and come back better looking and and that was sort of <laughs> <laughs> that was source of what what happened with me as well and i remember just kind of the, the day i was going going don't quite know how this happened but somehow i'm on a train to, oh, sorry, i'm on a plane to slovenia and then driving across the border to austria to this place on my own and it was suddenly a bit scary but it felt good so you had a few weeks there well i had one week there all right um and it's just a massive detox you go on this a uh, very low-calorie diet, very, very simple food, but balanced food. It's a mm. balanced diet. It's not a sort of a faddish thing. It's not mm. sort of all protein or anything like that. And you see doctors and you have tests and they, you know, they look into your food allergies or intolerances and tell you the things that you should cut out of your life. And you do a little bit of mild exercise, but not not very much because you don't have much energy because you're living off about 500 calories a day. Right, so it's not about the exercise, really. It's about the food. And, it's food. And what you're intolerant And clearing out your system, basically. Mm. And you just have this week which which gets you going mm. and they kind of explain the method and what, what's, what's going on and they teach you to chew your food slowly and... You know, do all of that kind of thing. There's there's a there's a lecture on how to eat a raisin for ten minutes. Wow. Um, or how to spend ten minutes eating a raisin and how it changes taste in your mouth and all of that. And so you come home and you do another two weeks of it in a slightly more relaxed way. So I probably went to a thousand calorie a day. And you lost presumably diet. a lot of weight through this. Lost week. a lot of weight that way. So I lost almost two stone, I think, that way. And felt better. Felt great. Mm. Yeah. You know, cause you, you noticed your energy. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You, you, you know, you feel good. Your skin looks good. Everyone says you look younger. You feel lighter. You know, you, you're doing exercise that suddenly feels easier. So you're getting on the bike or you're going to the gym and everything feels easier because you are lighter. Mm. Obviously, it's just kind of obvious. And as soon as you lose that weight, you kind of go, yes, why didn't I think about that before? And was it easy to stick to the, the principles, the central tenets of this way of... Well, I mean, it's essentially intermittent fasting. So... It was about shifting the day to eat breakfast, a proper lunch, and then basically no dinner. So I would have a soup or a very low-calorie light meal quite early on in the day, around 6 o'clock, before the news. And then Had you have... before had the habit of coming home and eating after? Yeah, I would always come home and eat at 9 o'clock or 9.30, and it's the worst thing in the world to have mm. a big meal at that mm. time of day. And so, yeah, that, that was the shift. And, and it's not easy to maintain. But you feel it's worth it. But at that point, I found it easy. Yeah, I, I found it easy all the way through last year until we got Strictly. Because as soon as you're doing Strictly, you're doing that kind of exercise. Burning so many more thousands of calories a day. You're just yeah. eating all the time just yeah. to keep going. And so that's when my regime went But did you stick to healthy eating when you were doing Strictly or did you find Not yourself? Not really, no. I have to say, because 
you just eat what's there. Yeah, yeah. You know, and dancers seem to eat terribly. I mean, it's sort of, <laughs> there's loads of sugar and um I think because they're burning, they're burning so many kind of calories, yeah. aren't they? Um, so they're probably not thinking too much. And they're young, Chris, they're young, let's not exactly. forget, they're no, in no, their no, 20s. Exactly, exactly. You know? So they don't care and it's fine and they, they can be healthy when they want, want to be healthy. But but they will often eat late as well. Mm. So we would often, so I would sometimes do the news and then go back to training at about 8.30 and do about an hour, hour and a half wow. more. And so you're finishing at 10, you're getting home at 11 and you're hungry. Yeah. So so the regime went out of the window during Strictly and I'm now trying to get it back, basically. Because you've realised that having kind of denied it almost for all those years, that actually you feel better. Oh, it you made look me better. feel much, much better. And then your self-esteem presumably has improved. Yeah. No, obviously it's nice you're being told. looking at yourself in the mirror thinking, oh, I look, I look pretty good. Exactly. And yeah. you don't want to get too hung up on that. But um, No, but it's good if you can see the rewards, isn't it? Yeah, and I think especially in our game on the telly, it is nice to feel that you kind of don't look terrible. Yeah. And I got into that place where a lot of, you know, especially with social media these days, a lot of people would just say, oh, you're so fat. Or that, you know, fat would become a sort of a, a term of abuse or whatever along the way of, of, of criticising something else that you've done. Mm. Uh, and you would just get used to that and think, well, it's fine. I'm a, you know, I'm just another one of those... Statistics. Old, 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 fat, serious guys on the telly. I don't need to be good looking. And it's quite nice when people say, oh, you look great. Or, you, you know. So what did your kids think? They were really pleased, I think, because they are probably more worried about my, my health issues now that I've talked about them and told them mm. more about them, which I never had before. Mm. So, yes, I think they are much happier mm. for me to be looking after myself and and caring about how have you had another test regarding the pre uh type 2 diabetes i I haven't um i mean i i did i haven't done anything since doing strictly because you Mm. don't have time Mm. (laughs) but yes i i I had a test before strictly and it had come down but i should probably have another one now and what about the the heart condition is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy yes right and you you live with that you manage that that's something that you you have tests for every year or two years I have just to check the heart's not thickening see, yeah exactly much. to see you know how it's how yeah. it's changing as a muscle and I don't have it very serious I have it very you know I have a very very mild form of the disease but it's just one of those things that's progressive and my dad has it and he's got like a sort of a pacemaker fitted under his in his chest which is a defibrillator mm-hmm. so that would shock him back into a regular heartbeat of his heart went into atrial fibrillation it's called where it just kind of Mm -hmm. tremors and one day I might have to have that if it gets worse I've had a couple of cousins who have died as a result of the condition prematurely one in his 20s and one in his 50s so it's just one of those things you you keep uh you keep tabs on and you have to keep testing I generally feel a lot fitter and so I think I'm and a lot more bold about what I can do. So Weights, that's the midlife key to yes. success. Weights and strength training so that you kind of keep those bones and muscles yeah. strong. And all the experts we've ever had on the 100 episodes or so who uh, kind of work in this area say it's never too late to start lifting. So, and lifting doesn't mean going to kind of, you know, an Arnold Schwarzenegger style gym and, you know, lifting massive Olympic barbells. Yeah. You can use all kinds of different resistance, but that seems to be everybody's, you know, kind of one go-to in midlife. Yes. So. Well, I mean, the, the one thing I discovered in the last year was Pilates. And, which is also which is amazing. Also and it's resistance because of using your... And, and, then, and then a little bit of weight training yeah. alongside that. Magic combination. Do you know, this seems like a really good time to bring in our expert, specialist dietitian, Dr Emily Porter. Uh, hello, Emily. 
Hello, Gabby. Hi, Chris. Hello. Nice to meet you both. Thank you so much for coming on. You're just listening in to Chris talking there about his midlife reset, I think you'd call it. And um, a lot of people listening, I think, will be very inspired by that because he said a few things, I think, that are really interesting, whether or not it was going to be too late. And he'd almost just let himself go on the travelator, as he, as he called it, kind of just carrying on with unhealthy habits and just seeing, you know, kind of what happens. And actually putting a stop to all of that is a brave and bold and sometimes difficult thing for people to do. Not everybody is going to head off to to Austria um, but there's a lot we can do with our with our gut health and our and our diet isn't there so um if if somebody's listening and they're feeling a little bit like that is is the low calorie diet is that restriction is that the best way to start mm, definitely and I think there's some really interesting bits that have come up from um sort of what Chris has spoken about with his his experience at the Maya Clinic and little bits of it like you say Gabby that we can pull out and apply to our our daily life without having to go maybe quite as as far as as Chris did at my clinic because like you say it has to be sustainable it has to become a long-term habit and fit into our our daily routine as well definitely in terms of things like the meal timing if we take out the sort of the intake of calories for the moment I mean there's been some really interesting work done I think it was Tel Aviv University who gave people the same amount of calories to eat some people had more of these calories earlier in the day some people ate more later in the day And actually, the group that had more front-loaded meals had around an 18% decrease in blood sugar levels through the day. Because our body is more sensitive to insulin, so the hormone that helps regulate our blood sugar levels in the morning. And definitely when we're looking at gut health as well, having those few hours before bed to give our body time to digest food, to let it empty out the stomach, has some really good benefits for almost that gut rest and, and reset overnight. Where Krish was talking about that intermittent fasting period doesn't necessarily have to be uh, a prolonged fasting period. It can simply be bringing that eating window earlier a little bit. You know, people often talk about the Mediterranean diet being a great diet, but I've just been in Spain for a few days and the Mediterranean diet is amazing, but people do eat it very late. You know, we'd have dinner at eight and we were the only people in the restaurant. They still love their late evening meals. So is it the kind of food as well that you're putting inside? Say you had to, like Chris just described there, coming home from training after he'd done the news, feeling hungry. If you had to have something before you went to bed, are there certain foods that are going to react better for your gut and for your insulin and, you know, blood sugar levels? Mm, definitely and I think it's a it's a really interesting point it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning it has to be something that fits into your lifestyle and actually food is more than just fuel and nutrition Mm. it's also social cultural emotional all the other things that um, come sort of wrapped up with diets I think definitely if we are eating later at night going for something that is potentially a little bit easier to digest so not high fat high sugar meal for example there is some evidence suggesting the higher protein food can maybe help with with sleep overnight but definitely when we're looking at things like gut health and eating for managing blood sugar levels as well fiber intake is really really important and I think this is one of the I guess one of the key components of a a more Mediterranean style diet pattern as well Mm. so lots of whole grains lots of beans and pulses lots of fruit and veg in there so definitely including lots of those plant-derived types of fiber in there is going to be beneficial for for gut health and also for um, sort of blood sugar management as well. So if we look at things like beans and pulses, for example, we know they're a great source of fibre for the for the gut bacteria. All the all the bugs in our large mm. intestine like different types of fibre. Beans and pulses can be a really good a really good thing to fuel them with. 
also for things like blood sugar levels we know beans and pulses have something called the second meal effect so not only are they helpful for managing blood sugar levels then and there but potentially even into the the next day as well so if you are eating something late at night what can we pack in there to make sure that it's still a nutritious Mm. balanced meal i guess it's also having things sometimes when you've got to eat late at night, having things prepared, isn't it? So, um, you know, whether it's something like a little bean salad that you've done earlier in the day, when you come in, you're more likely to nibble on that than if you haven't got that and you see a big loaf of sourdough and think, oh, I might just smash a load of jam on that or, you know, and that's the worst thing you can probably have before you go to sleep. So I think prep is everything, isn't it? Which sometimes seems a bit tedious, but actually will save you in the long run. <laughs> The, the killer yeah. is alcohol, though, isn't it? Yeah, alcohol, yeah. Late at night. Yeah, and as soon as you have alcohol, you then want to eat A snack. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. somehow psychologically you think that the snack's going to take away the alcohol from your... I always feel like, <laughs> oh, if I eat something with it, the alcohol won't affect my sleep somehow. Yeah. It'll kind of suck up the alcohol. <laughs> that, that is the single thing that makes keeping any regime really, really hard. How, how and also, if you get into the habit if reading the news and then having a glass of wine, you know, yeah. that's, that's the habit, I think, that you, how hard was that to break when you'd come back from Austria? Really, really hard. I mean, I had to, I, I sort of, I stopped drinking as well for two or three weeks um, and then sort of, life is too short to not have a glass of wine. So, uh, <laughs> so, so, um, so I started drinking again, but not, but trying to just be aware of it and, yeah. and compensating. I think that, you know, because going out for dinner is also quite a big part of my life. Yeah. So deciding not to have dinner <laughs> is not realistic seven days a week. But I would try and compensate. If I knew I was going to go out for dinner, mm. I, I wouldn't have a big lunch or I would shift my breakfast time mm. the next day or whatever it is. I think that is the thing, isn't it? It's the plan of the week. You look ahead and you think, right, well, there's going to be a couple of nights here where I'd like to have a drink and I'd like to have a nice meal with friends that might mean my food's after eight o'clock. So on the other days, being a bit more careful. I want to ask you a bit about the test that Chris had the uh, to find out that he was potentially pre-type 2 uh, diabetic. And what does that look like? You know, what, how, do, how, does, how does one know that that is needed or might happen? And I think that's a, it's a really interesting question because there's a lot in the media and a lot of buzz around things like continuous glucose meters, for example, mm. the little sensors that are people wearing on their, their arms that are looking at blood sugars in the short term. But in terms of looking at diagnosing diabetes, the test that Frisch had, the, the blood test, is for something called H, HbA1c, which is basically a, a medium term measure of what your blood sugar levels are doing. So they look at essentially the amount of glucose attached to your red blood cells over a three-month period and look at where that sits. And then we've got certain cutoffs for where that falls within a pre-diabetic range or where it would fall into a a diagnosis of diabetes. But the good news is, as we've already touched upon as we've gone through, you can bring that down. You can put a diagnosis of type 2 into remission or you can bring it back down into the the pre-diabetic range. You know, not so long ago, people would have been put onto drugs straight away or told that this was irreversible almost. And actually, there's been a lot of studies showing that you can, not just the pre, but also a diagnosis of type 2 can be reversed. Yeah, definitely. And I think some of the risk factors for diabetes are things that are outside our control. So things like genetics, ethnicity, age. Also, so many of them are things that we can modify. So diet, lifestyle, 
not just thinking about the foods that we're eating, but things like stress levels that can impact blood sugar levels, um, things like how we're sleeping, how well we're moving, things like hormones as well. Um, unfortunately, as women, as our estrogen levels drop, our sensitivity to insulin is likely to decrease a little bit as well. But lots of things we can do in terms of changing, change, slightly changing what we eat and how we eat and how we live our lives that we can do to work, work alongside those changes as well. And absolutely possible for a lot of people not for yeah. everybody but for a lot of people to, to put that diabetes into into remission or to bring it's believing it's out. possible though that i think is yeah. really important i mean when i got my pre-diabetic mm. diagnosis the gp gave me a couple of books mm. uh pamphlets and so and, and they were about how you need to have a very low calorie diet to try and reverse this and it said try and have an 800 calorie diet for a number of weeks mm. and i remember looking at this thinking that's just totally impossible if i look at think about my calorific intake mm. there's no way i could do that and i think that's one of the reasons why i didn't do anything about it because i didn't think it was realistic that i'd be able to do that and but actually obviously when i went to austria i went on to 500 calories a day <laughs> and that and that i'm not saying it, it is not good to need to have to go and pay to go to a very expensive clinic to be prove you know to have something to, to prove it wrong but in my case that's what happened you know i sort of actually you can and yeah. therefore after that you can carry it on but i think there is something that they need to improve about the way they tell people that this is possible because because my if you just think about a burger or a glass of wine mm. or a you know and any normal sort of piece of food that you might have during the course of you've the day, almost taken your calories that's it yeah. you've done it in one meal or, or, you know, not even one meal sometimes. I think the the health messaging, and I was about to actually kind of bring this up actually in terms of age, you waited until you were kind of into your 50s to make this change. But actually the health messaging kind of, uh, and I know it's never too late to address your, your health, but it's that build up, especially for women, I think towards menopause as well, that, that, you know, if you can get hold of these things in your 40s, you know, the younger you are, it's going to be probably easier to break cycles and make changes. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's one of the things that the NHS are starting to do now, which is bringing it back to focus a little bit more on prevention and being a little bit more proactive rather than mm. reactive, which is definitely something that we can do as, as individuals as well. And definitely making some of those changes earlier on. If you look at onset of menopause, for example, eating more oily fish has been associated with delaying menopause onset for about three years eating 75 grams of fresh beans or pulses every day might delay onset of menopause by a year. So lots of those changes that we can think about making slightly earlier on, as Chris was saying, things like resistance training um, and strength training, as, as you were saying as well, Gabby. We know that our bone density starts to decrease scarily from about in our 30s. Mm. So even from that point, starting to focus on things like strength training, making sure that we're getting enough calcium and, and vitamin D, I think are really important in terms of, I guess, future-proofing our health and expanding or prolonging our health span, not necessarily our lifespan, but also the length of time that we're staying fit and healthy and, and independent for. Thank you so much, Emily. Great having you on The Midpoint. And I'm just thinking, Chris, your other hat on as a, as a news uh, reader and news hound and journalist in terms of what the NHS is doing with this. I haven't had it personally, but I've heard quite a few people, including my mum, having calls from her GP to go in and just have some tests. And um, that proactiveness for me is the thing that the piece in, in the puzzle, if you like, of our societal health that has just got to become 
more prevalent for everybody. You know, getting in there earlier with people. Okay, you haven't been to the doctors. This is the reason they said to my mum, you haven't been to the doctors for years. <laughs> they were a bit suspicious yeah. about why. We just want to take some readings. And she found out, actually, I'm sure she won't mind me saying, that um, her cholesterol was a little bit high. And they immediately offered her, oh gosh, what are they called? Statins. Statins, yes. And she said, well, can I change my diet? And they said, yes. So she said, I'd rather do that. And so she's really conscious now. She wasn't overweight particularly, or but she she does like, you know, some naughty things in her diet. And she's really conscious about it now and is eating so much better. But that all came through the proactiveness of the health yeah. service, looking at her and going, we haven't seen her for a long time. So what, you know, what's going on there? And I, I think politically, you know, wouldn't you be, whatever party you are, that, that that's something that you, you would be pushing. I mean, the, the health service have, has been talking about more preventative medicine for as long as I can yeah. remember. But um, Actually doing it? Yeah, I, and, I, and I think there is more going on now, but I think partly just because the conversation's changed anyway. So, so things that we're talking about that would have been regarded as ridiculous and faddish and just for mm. e- either crazies or people with too, you know, more, more, more money than sense... Mm even maybe 15 years ago is now you know is now mainstream and sensible and so i think the the whole tenor of the conversation around diet health exercise even things like intolerances and mm. the number of people who are ordering oat milk instead of dairy and all that kind of stuff you know is is just all for the for the better and i think that you know where are you though on things like actually policing that and the nanny state not you know sugar taxes or actually taking those foods away from people's you know kind of eyeline almost and well i mean in, in terms of policy obviously i just have to stay neutral and not, not not give an opinion but i mean i think that conversation will happen a lot more but the question is how you do it. Mm. <laughs> sort of, it's it's the difference between things that seem punitive and actually getting food manufacturers to reformulate mm. through regulation and just take sugar, you know, the amount of sugar out of chocolate bars or ready meals or that kind of stuff. It's probably just as effective as the, the more sort of sledgehammer mm. nanny state kind of measures. So I think we'll see a lot more of it generally. So the the Krishna Guru Murphy that sits here now, to so the one a year ago before you went on your your health journey and your strictly journey, um, compare the two. I mean, that's quite the contrast, I think, in a year. Not just not just the physical and the outside, but everything that's gone on inside. Yeah, no, it's quite hard to um, to put myself back there in a way, uh, and I don't particularly want to. It's not that I was unhappy, but I think I was I was really in a rut of, and I'd sort of given up. On myself a little bit, so so I, I think I realise now that you you can first of all you can change quite a lot in quite a short period of time, so that's quite inspiring. Mm, generally. Very inspiring. You can feel very differently physically, and and that will change the way you feel emotionally. And you can think about your life in a slightly different way. You can sort of <laughs> feel slightly more hopeful. I mean, I I think you got your mojo back. A little bit. I mean, I slightly inherited. I think you know. My, I grew up with my, my dad has, you know, kind of either joked or talked about the fact that he was going to die since I was about eight, um, and so it's always been a kind of like, oh, you know, I'll I'll be dead and gone by then. You know, when he was sort of talking about his sixties or his seventies or his eighties, and he's now ninety and still works for the NHS. For wow, time, um, <laughs> and he's still going. And so, so, so the joke has become, well, you're still here. You know, yeah. um, wrong again. But I, so, so I think I grew up with that and I probably inherited a bit of it and I'd started doing the same thing. I think I'd sort of done that same sort of shtick, shtick yeah. with the kids about, well, I'll be dead and gone by then and, you know, mum can find a new husband and blah, blah, blah and all this kind of stuff. And 
and and and part of it was a joke, and part you know was just a sort of a way of talking, and part of it was sort of true. And I kind of thought, well, I've got all these things wrong with me. One of them's going to get me sooner or later. And I don't really think like that now. I, you know, I, I kind of think, well, there's actually no reason why you can't not stop them because they are just things that you have, but you can mitigate them. Mm. You can be sensible. <laughs> you can enjoy life, and you can feel younger. And I think that's the thing. I feel younger. Yeah. Um, you look younger. Than I, than I did a year ago. That's probably the biggest and easiest well, you, way to describe it. You have it. reversed a, you know, the ageing process in, biologically, I'm sure, because of the, the metrics will show that, won't they? Because of your diet. And that is I now guess. the perceived kind yeah. of wisdom in science that, you know, by doing those things that you've done, it is inspiring, Krish. And I'm sure many people listening to this will feel motivated by hearing your story. So thank you so much. Thank you for having for sharing me. sharing it today. And... Uh, Best of luck with everything going forward. I'd like to see what that thing is that fills the Strictly hole over the next few years. Watch this space. <laughs> well, the, the next immediate thing is the bike ride, <laughs> which is in May, so I've got to get back on the bike. And a great charity as <laughs> yeah. well, uh, Duchesne's. I'm uh, president of Muscular Dystrophy UK, so oh, I know of course. a lot about yeah, Duchesne. Yeah. So good luck with that, with the bike riding. And maybe keep, keep it up a little bit through the year. Yes. Maybe. I mean, all that gorgeous <laughs> gear, the Lycra, you can't... You may as well keep it. Yeah, you yeah. may as well. Thank you. It was so lovely to catch up with Krish and I'm so glad that fun Krish has been revived and is hopefully here to stay. And I really admire the way he's taken control of his health again at this time of life because like he said, actually you can prioritise your health and it doesn't have to involve a full detox retreat, although that did sound lovely. The things that Dr Emily Porter's spoken about may be a good place to start, so a huge thanks to her as well. Uh, thanks to Krish, to Spiritland Creative and to you for keeping me company. I'll be back next Wednesday with another brilliant guest to discuss all things midlife. Bye-bye for now. Listener.